First Peter is a book we've been going through together, and uh, we've said that the theme of the book is uh, living in victory while facing opposition. A subtitle for the book would be uh, Suffering for Righteousness' Sake in the Hope of Glory. Suffering for Righteousness' Sake in the Hope of Glory. And the paragraph before our attention this morning is 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11. Um, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there, even if the verses are up on the screen. If you have your Bibles open, then you can uh, perhaps make notes in your margin if you write in your Bibles and so forth. So 1 Peter 4, uh, verse 7. This is a very helpful paragraph because the paragraph... Uh, tells us two attitudes that God would will for each of us to have when we suffer. Two attitudes that God wills for us each to have in the midst of suffering. I'm going to overview the two attitudes and then we'll look at each attitude more specifically. The first attitude in our paragraph for why we suffer is to be expectant of the Lord's return. To be expecting him to come for us. Verse 7, 1 Peter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. We are to be expectant of Christ's return. Why? Because the end is near. It's not far away. It's not theoretical. It's not pie in the sky, the end of all things is close. And if it was close when God gave the first uh, letter that Peter wrote to the original readership, it's even more close this morning. And so we are to sing with the hymn writer, Jesus may come today, glad day, glad day, then I would see my friend, labors and trials would end. And so the first attitude we are to have as we face suffering now, is to be expecting the Lord Jesus Christ to return. The second attitude that is in our paragraph that we are willed to have by God when we suffer is being compassionate, loving, and compassionate to fellow believers, to brothers and sisters in Christ. I see that in verses 8 through 11. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as God supplies in all things that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The second attitude uh, put forward to us in suffering, covered by verses 8 and 11, is love. Be hospitable. Love. Serve other Christians with your spiritual gift. Love. Now let's go back, let's circle back to attitude number one, the attitude of expectation about the Lord's return. 
And so the question I asked myself this week as I studied the text and I wrote this sermon, the question I asked myself probably is a question you should ask yourselves, and it's this, do I really believe that the end of all things is at hand? Do I really believe that the return of Christ is near? Do I really believe that? And if I do believe that, does it show? Does my belief that the end of all things is near, that Christ could come back at any time, does that show? Do I actually live like I think that Christ could come back for his church this morning before the benediction? Verse 7 gives us very helpful measuring rods as to how much we actually do expect the return of Christ. Verse 7, in fact, gives us three measuring sticks that we can look at with honesty in our lives to see just how much we expect Jesus to return soon. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be of sound judgment, that's the first measuring stick, and sober spirit, that's the second measuring stick, for the purpose of prayer, that's the third measuring stick. Let me take them one at a time. Christians that are actually expecting Jesus Christ to return soon are people who are of sound judgment. We are of sound judgment if we see Jesus Christ return as being imminent. Put another way, if we see his return as being imminent, we're going to have sound judgment. What is sound judgment? Sound judgment from the original Greek here means a safe mind. To have sound judgment is to have a safe mind. A mind that is not given to extremes. A mind that is calm and cool and collected. A mind that is under the control of the Holy Spirit. That is what it means to have sound judgment. The opposite of sound judgment is the Greek word mania. From, we, the, from which we get our English term maniac. The opposite of having sound judgment is losing our head, not remaining calm, believing theories of prophecy that anybody purports, not getting the facts, not researching for ourselves, Not thinking on realities, but instead thinking on fallacies, speculations, and rumors. We are not to be that way. If we are suffering and we are expecting Jesus to return at any time, we are to be of sound judgment. We are to have minds that are safe. Some years ago, several years ago, one of the churches I was pastoring several years ago, we exercise sound judgment. The rumor was circulating that Procter and Gamble's logo was satanic. That in the logo of Procter and Gamble, there were little hints of Satan worship in the corporation. 
And so all kinds of Christians who did not have safe minds said, boycott Procter & Gamble, all their products. Well, as research was done, as, as we looked into it, it wasn't true. The logo did not have satanic hidden features. And so that was a case where we as a local church, with God's help, had a safe mind. We didn't go and swing to an extreme. We remained calm and cool. Our minds were under control, and we majored on the facts, not the rumors. That's what God wants for every believer that as we suffer, and we will, as we suffer, we look forward to Jesus' near return, and we show that by having sound judgment. There's a second thing in the text as to measuring our actual expectancy of Christ's return. And that second thing is a sober spirit. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit. A sober spirit is being alert. It's not being lazy in our thinking or in our living. It's not procrastinating. It's not being distracted. It's not being negligent spiritually. It's not being preoccupied, and it's certainly not being silly. Ever met a silly Christian? They're always silly. They don't take anything seriously. Now, I like jokes, and I tell jokes, and most of you know my jokes aren't that funny. But I take very seriously people being saved or people being lost. I take very seriously there's a heaven to gain and a hell to avoid. I take very seriously personal discipleship that teaches believers to be committed followers of Jesus. I take seriously the Bible. I take seriously prayer. I take seriously my testimony with other people. I take seriously evangelism. I take seriously worship. Believers who are truly expecting Jesus anytime now return have a sober spirit. They take life seriously. They carefully evaluate how to invest their time, how to invest their energy, how to invest their money, how to invest their spiritual gift. Christians with a sober spirit, put another way, live examined lives. They live examined lives. They take Psalm 90 verse 12 into regular consideration as they pray. So teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. That's Psalm 90 verse 12. In the Hebrew the word most commonly translated heart is lave, and it is in uh, Psalm 90.12. Lave was the launching pad of all the rockets of a person's life. Lave was motivations for doing and not doing, motivations for saying and not saying, motivations for thinking and not thinking. Choices made about time, choices made about marriage, choices made about parenting, choices made about vocation, God says, 
we should say, teach me to number my days. They're finite, you know. Teach me to number my days. Why? That I may apply my launching pad, my inner launching pad, to wisdom. The sober-spirited believer lives an examined life. They spend time daily in the word of God. Some people call it a quiet time. Some people call it devotions. But they spend time in the word of God and they journal. They have a book or a piece of paper. And when they're in God's word each day, they write down what they've learned in the passage. They write down their prayer requests of themselves in light of the passage. They write down prayer requests of others in their journals. It's all part of living an examined life. Christians who live an examined life dare not go through life as a uh, solo sport, as a silo, not letting anybody into the private or the public life that you have. And we dare not live that way. We must live with accountability. If our spouse cannot be our accountability partner, and I don't see why she or he couldn't, But if you're going to have an accountability partner who is not your spouse, then make sure it's the same gender as you. And that accountability partner has every right, you give them every right, to ask you the tough questions at any time about your struggles. You tell, I struggle with impatience. I struggle with road rage. I struggle with a critical spirit. My accountability partner should have every right at any time to say, how's the road rage? How's your critical spirit? The Christian who lives an examined life considers stewardship that everything we have is by God giving it to us, including the breath I'm drawing to preach today. And the Christian with a sober spirit recognizes that everything they have, they must be a steward of. Time, health and strength, soundness of mind, children, a job, a church. We must be stewards of these things. We must manage these things without waste. We must not pilfer these things from God, steal these things from God. You do realize that And this will help you have a sober spirit. You do realize that you may not always have a sound mind as you age. You do realize that you probably won't always have the physical strength you had as a younger person. You do realize that you won't always be married if your spouse dies. You do realize that your kids won't always live under your roof where you will have input into their uh, disciple-making decisions, you do realize that you won't always be 40 years old. You do realize that these are things that we must be stewards over. I opened my comments about the persecuted church. You do realize that it is not far-fetched that radical Islamic terrorists, there are mosques on this island, that they could come and forbid us to worship 
And I'm not saying that the Muslims in our mosques are radical. I'm not saying that. You do realize that there are gauges on the dashboard of our lives. And there are a lot of gauges on the church's SUV. And I watch them. But there's one gauge I really watch. And the gauge on the SUV's dashboard that I really watch is the fuel gauge. Because I don't want to run out of fuel, especially at night. So I watch that fuel gauge, and I watch where it's at. Now, Beth and I have learned from living in a snowy, icy climate that we consider our gas tank empty when it's half empty. When it hits the halfway point, we consider that empty and we get gas. But I watch the gauge. There are gauges on your Christian life. There are two gauges. And Jesus answered a lawyer in Matthew 22 about these gauges. And, but when the Pharisees, verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the most important gauge on my life, Jesus? What's the most important gauge on the dashboard of my life, Jesus? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Most important gauge on the dashboard of my life and yours is our love for the Lord God. The second gauge that Jesus went on told the lawyer, uh, this is the greatest and foremost commandment. Then he goes on, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says to this lawyer, you want to know about the gauges on the dashboard of your life, lawyer? There are two that are really important. The most important is the gauge that measures your love for God. And the second gauge, the second most important gauge on the dashboard of your life, lawyer, is the gauge that measures your love for other people. This is a vertical gauge, the love for God. This is a horizontal gauge, the love for other people, and they're related. If you love God properly, if I love God properly, I will love people properly. If I don't love God properly, I will not love people properly. And so the Christian, with the sober spirit, looks at those two gauges on his or her life all the time. How much am I loving God? And how much am I loving other people? So teach me to number my days that I may apply my heart to wisdom. Lord, help me to love you more. Because when I love you more, I'll love others more. And that's what it's all about. Now, while we're talking about the sober spirit, the examined life, the understanding we have a time-limited resources with which to be stewards, the other thing that Christians with a sober spirit have is a hatred for idols. An idol is anything in my life that causes me not to love God as my number one love. Anything, my wife, my children, my church, 
pastoring, if I love any of those things more than I love God, I have idols in my life. Reminds me of the, the young mother who was at her sink uh, making, preparing dinner one evening. And she looked into her backyard through the window by her sink, and she saw her three children in the backyard, each playing with a baby skunk. <laughs> and so she left the sink and she went to the back door and she said, <laughs> children, quick, run. Whereupon they each picked up their skunk <laughs> and ran. They each picked up their skunk and ran. That's how it is, isn't it? Sometimes the Holy Spirit from the Holy Scriptures calls to us, run from your idol. And we say, I kind of like it. Nobody knows about it, you know. They don't think I'll get found out. I'll just play around. The Christian with the sober spirit will not tolerate idols that become evident to him in his or her life. And so we're talking about being in suffering, properly expecting Jesus Christ's return. We've talked about how you know if you're properly expecting your Savior's return. Number one, you have sound judgment, a safe mind. Number two, you have a sober spirit. You live an examined life. And number three, still in verse seven, the person who's properly expecting Jesus Christ's return gives priority to prayer. Verse seven, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. What a connection. The connection between watching for Jesus Christ's return for the church and serious praying. How serious is my prayer life, I asked this week, and how serious is your prayer life? You may want to ask right now, do you have a consistent, do I have a consistent habit for praying, a time, a place to pray? Of course, we pray without ceasing. We pray at all times. But do we have a time earmarked for prayer? Do we have a place earmarked for prayer? That'll help us take prayer seriously. Well, the person here today, perhaps, says, well, pastor, my praying, I admit, is rather hit and miss. It's rather careless. I would say with all humility and with a smile, then you're not expecting the return of Jesus Christ enough. Or the person who may say, well, I'm too busy to pray. Then I would say you're not really expecting Jesus Christ's return very much. You see, the praying believer is the watching believer. The watching for Christ's return believer is the praying believer. They're linked. It was D.L. Moody, knowing this, said, the Christian on his knees sees more than the philosopher on his tiptoes. Kenneth Weiss, the Greek scholar, said, everything depends on prayer. Whatever weakens your prayer life is sinful. And so to review, the first proper outlook and attitude when we suffer is to be expectant about the Lord coming back. And that looks like having a sound judgment, a sober spirit, and a strong prayer life. The second attitude or outlook that we are to have in suffering is to be compassionate 
toward other believers, to be loving and compassionate toward brothers and sisters in Christ, principally in this assembly. 8 to 11. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so... The way that, second way in the text that we are to demonstrate a proper expectation of Jesus' return while we suffer is to be lovingly compassionate with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And just like there were three measurements under the first point of expecting Jesus Christ's return, this, this second point also has three measuring rods, three measurements to tell us just how compassionate and loving we are to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The first measuring stick, we love fervently. Do you love fervently? Or fickly, circumstantially, conveniently, with bias, love some people and, and not others. We are to love fervently. Second, we are to show hospitality cheerfully. We are not to complain at the prospect of being hospitable to each other. Third, we serve within this local assembly. We serve spiritually. That is, we don't serve naturally. We don't serve in our own smarts or strength. We serve spiritually using our one or more spiritual gifts that we were endowed with at the moment of conversion. And so let's look at these actions under the attitude we ought to have when we suffer, the attitude of compassionately loving brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's start with fervently loving, fervently loving. Verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. The Greek adverb translated fervently suggested straining toward, straining toward, like a sprinter at the stadium strains toward the finish line. We are fervently loving each other when we are straining toward in that loving. And all of us are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ in the assembly and our brothers and sisters in Christ outside of it putting out a lot of effort, straining. And why? Love other believers in this tiring and exhausting and sometimes inconveniencing way because such loving covers a multitude of sins. Does someone in our assembly present a challenge to you? You find them difficult? not easy to interact with. Fervently love them. Strain at meeting their needs that you know about. 
You can't be annoyed with a brother or sister in Christ that you are fervently loving. The two don't go together. To have one is not to have the other. If you want to get over being annoyed with someone, then fervently love them. If you're not fervently loving a person, it's probably because you're annoyed with them. One little boy saw this whole truth that love covers a multitude of sins in his own home one evening at the kitchen table. They were having dinner as a family. He was their only child. And very unfortunately, the mother and the father were bickering right in front of the child, so sad and so wrong. They were basically not encouraging each other as married people. They were putting each other down. Again, so wrong, especially in front of a child. And so the father said to the wife, the husband said to his wife, why don't we put down on paper the things that are annoying us about each other? And so the paper went out and the pens went out and both of them wrote on the paper. And then he said, let's exchange papers. And so the wife handed the husband her sheet and there were several things that she found annoying in her husband at that point in their marriage. And then the wife said, give me your sheet. And his sheet said, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Love covers a multitude of sins. And the same principle will work for each of us when we put it into practice. A very practical and a very necessary way to show compassion to each other as brothers and sisters is to be hospitable. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Could you have or will you have a brother or a sister from our assembly to your house for dessert? Doesn't have to be a full meal. Coffee? Just to get together, get to know each other, bless each other. One thing about pastoring in the beautiful Bahamas is I get all kinds of emails of people who want to visit our church, which is great. I love it. But when we ask first-time visitors to stand as we do every week, what do we do after that? Do we ever invite them to eat with us? It doesn't have to be expensive. You could invite them to Dairy Queen, which is the breakfast of champions as far as I'm concerned. You don't have to cook a meal. You could steep a pot of tea. And of course, not all Christian hospitality involves inconvenience. You can pick a time that's convenient to you and you can ask the party you want to have hospitality given to them and say, what's convenient for you? You know, Tuesdays work good for our family. Is there a Tuesday that can work for you? The point is doing it without complaining. What about, <laughs> what about 
I'm told, you know, in some congregations, I'm sure it's not true in this congregation, that people who sit in this section have no idea who the people in this section are. And in those churches, you ask, do you know so-and-so? And they say, what side of the sanctuary do they sit on? I sit on the right. Well, I think they sit on the left. If there's someone you don't know, why don't you make it a point to have some hospitality, whatever you can afford? It's the way we fervently love. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So we've seen that under being lovingly compassionate, the verses tell us love fervently and show hospitality cheerfully. The third and last thing we see in the passage as to how we can love compassionately is to serve within the local church spiritually with our spiritual gifts as stewards of our spiritual gifts. We're not to bury our spiritual gift or put it into mothballs or dry dock. And no, we've been given the spiritual gift to use it for the glory of God and the upbuilding of God's people. Verse 11. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. You say, what's my spiritual gift, Pastor? Well, uh, if you don't know, you're not alone. (laughs) I've learned over the years that probably the majority of the saints in any assembly don't know their spiritual gift yet, but you can find out. You know how you find out? You roll up your sleeves and you volunteer to do something. And if doing that for five minutes seems like an hour, it probably involves a spiritual gift you don't have. It's all right. You try something else, and doing that something else ministry for an hour seems like five minutes? That's probably using your spiritual gift, and that's the way to go. So what about volunteering with any ministry head in the church and saying, may I serve for two weeks? May I experiment? We are to use our spiritual gifts for the glory of God and the upbuilding of each other. Now, you say, what are the available gifts? Well, I say start with Romans 12, 6 through 8. And in that, those verses, it talks about prophesying in the non-technical sense, telling forth already revealed scripture, prophesying, serving, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading, and showing mercy. And so it says in verse uh, 10, Verse 11, whoever speaks, so there are some spiritual gifts that involve speaking. Let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Now there's whoever serves, so some spiritual gifts involve serving more than speaking. And just a very quick division of the Romans 12 spiritual gifts might look like this, that the speaking gifts would be prophesying, teaching, exhorting, and leading. And the serving gifts would be serving, giving, leading, and showing mercy. And so, as I was trying to think through how to close this sermon, 
and think through how to help you be stewards of your spiritual gifts, I was thinking in terms of three categories of life stages. The one category is the retired person or the ill person or the homebound person. The second category I thought about was the child in our assembly, the the little child. And the third category I thought of was working adults like me and many of you. We still work. We're adults and we work. What could a retired, ill, homebound member of this assembly do? They could phone others to get encouragement and to give encouragement. They could pray through our prayer sheet. They could invite persons to tea inside their home. They could direct persons to our two radio broadcasts and to our services, although they can't make it to the services. They could direct other people who could make it to the services. They could write or email our missionaries. They could evangelize using the phone. They could babysit for younger families. What about children? What could the children in our church do to use their spiritual gifts? Well, they could evangelize their children, friends who are at school or neighborhood. They could pray through the prayer sheet. Children could direct other children to the radio broadcasts and to our two worship services. Children could email missionaries. Children could phone others and pray or listen or encourage? What about the working adults? What about the adults in our assembly that are still working? We could pray through the prayer sheet. We could evangelize the lost. We could direct persons to our two radio broadcasts and to one of our worship services. We could email our missionaries. We could phone people. We could babysit. Pastor Nicholas, our youth pastor, told the pastors yesterday something that just I'm still staggered by. He said that in our assembly right now, there are at least 20 children who are orphans, either literally or practically orphans. And they come to church, and they have no adults in their lives. Do you think we could use our spiritual gifts to help these children? Do you think we could give them food? A lot of these children are hungry. Last year at Awana, there was a child who expressed they had no food at home in the cupboards. And our leaders believed her, and they gave her a big heaping bag of groceries from Inasmuch. And carrying those home, she was mugged by other people, and the food was stolen. Do you think we could use our spiritual gifts to sit with these orphan kids in the Lord's table time, the Lord's supper? They don't know what to do. Could you sit beside one of these precious children and explain what we're doing? For that matter, could you find these orphans and sit with them on every Sunday, not just Lord's Supper Sunday? Much it would be like as a child to come into this setting, not know what to do, 
Not to have an adult helping them know what to do. We have some that do a good job helping our children who are in the balcony, but is it only two or three people that can help our children in the balcony? Do you have any time through the week as you befriend an orphan child in our services that you could spend just listening to the child and hanging out with the child and showing the child they matter? Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord, suffering is not an odd thing. Suffering is not an exception for us who love you. Suffering is par for the course. We ought to expect suffering. And Lord, as we expect suffering, help us to know the victory as we face the opposition. And Lord, as we experience the suffering, help us to love fervently. Help us to strain to love each other. Because Jesus said, they will know that we are his followers if we love one another. The corollary of that is, if we do not love one another, they have every reason to doubt that we follow Jesus. Help us, Lord. Help us to put into practice our paragraph for today. For we ask this in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen.